You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Early episodes of this show sound like crap. Just take a listen. The family of Pierre de la Ramie had fallen even before he was born in 1515. See? Because sometimes people will tell me that they don't, that they're going back and listening to old Constance and can't tell the difference. But come on, this? People were killing their babies. This sounds like crap. That was the first problem. I started producing this show with a cheap microphone in a small closet with very little knowledge of how to make good sound. Today, the microphone is less cheap, the closet is larger, and I've fumbled my way into a half-acceptable understanding of audio. I'm sure I'll eventually look back on this and find it grating, too. But it's not just that the sound quality used to be bad. Just to get it as good as it was meant I had to make certain compromises. Specifically, I had to set the gain on the mic really, really low. And then eat it. Put my mouth basically on the thing. And whisper. Then, when I was done, I'd bake the whole thing. Amplify it to a normal volume. So not only was the result kind of crummy, but I couldn't really express myself dynamically. Everything had to be pretty quiet and monotonal. And it is a shame, because there are a lot of early constant stories that I would otherwise like people to listen to, but I can't recommend them because of those compromises. Two years ago, for our 100th episode, it has been two years since our 100th episode, I rewrote, re-recorded, and remastered a couple of those early episodes. And today, we're going to do that again, taking a few otherwise unlistenable stories and bringing them up to snuff. And since it's been a while since we had a story about a hero, a good guy, someone worth looking up to, I thought it'd be nice to revisit two of my favorite people, Petrus Ramos and Ignis Semmelweis. So, this is The Constant, the history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's two-in-one Criterion Collection Director's Cut episode, Everything Aristotle Said is Wrong, and The Reflex. Now with more dynamism, let's do it. The 
family of Pierre de la Ramie had fallen, even before he was born in 1515. They had once belonged to nobility, but by the time Pierre came around, his father was a poor farmer working fields in the north of France. From an early age, Pierre decided that that fate would not be his. As a young boy, he twice ran away from home, attempting to hoof his way to Paris and education. At age 12, he succeeded, gaining entrance to the University of Paris by paying his way working as a servant to his fellow students. For the next nine years, he worked and studied until it was finally time to deliver his master's thesis. At that time, theses were delivered orally, not written down, so we don't know what exactly he said. What we do know is that on that afternoon, in 1536, Pierre de la Ramie, who took the Latin name Petrus Ramus along with his degree, changed the world with his title alone. Que cumque ab Aristotle dicta essent, commentitia esse. Translation, everything Aristotle said is wrong. Which is the title of this first piece, which will present us with an opportunity to take some pot shots at Aristotle. What did Ramis say in that room at the University of Paris? Did he proclaim that flies had six legs rather than four, as Aristotle had claimed? Or did he disprove Aristotle's notion that snot was made up of little bits of brain being ejected through the nose? A brain that, in his estimation, was only good for cooling the blood. Maybe Ramus took umbrage with one of the most exemplary examples of Aristotelian gobbledygook, which has to do with sharks. In his History of Animals, Aristotle considered a strange question. Why is a shark's mouth underneath its snout, rather than at the foremost forward tip of its head, as is true of most fish? To Aristotle, this represented a liability, a disadvantage to the shark. And that's obviously not true. It's fair to call that obviously not true. Sharks' mouths work pretty darn well just where they are. And even if we grant the placement of a shark's mouth as less than optimal, we could easily explain the advantages that override any difficulties. Bite strength, torsion, whatever. But Aristotle thought that the inconvenience of the shark's mouth was its purpose. He theorized that if a shark's mouth were better placed, it would render the shark an unstoppable killing machine. Sharks would eat every fish in the ocean and stuff themselves to death in the process. An awkward mouth is the only thing standing between sharks and global annihilation. In just three easy steps, Aristotle invents a problem, barely examines it, and concludes that the problem is, in itself, the solution. That is my boy Aristotle. But that's probably not what Ramus had in mind. Luckily for us, Ramus didn't stop at his thesis. He became a professor there in Paris, and in his lectures, he continued to absolutely savage Aristotle. Mostly, Ramus's complaints came down to differences in formal logic, rhetoric, and pedagogy. That is, how to know, how to learn, and how to teach. Doesn't sound like a big deal, right? A complaint about scholarly methods, basically epistemology? What could be more banal? Oh man, no. 
since at least 1256, when Thomas Aquinas praised him as THE philosopher, that's capital T, capital P, Aristotle was taken by the medieval world as almost an extension of the Gospels. Sacrosanct. Inerrant. With that backdrop, lambasting Aristotle's scholasticism amounted to heresy, and it was not taken lightly, especially by a fellow professor, Jacques Charpentier, who brought charges against Ramus, naming him an enemy of the faith, a disturber of the public peace, and a corrupter of youth with dangerous novelties. These charges were kicked up from the provost to the local magistrate, to the French parliament, and finally to King Francis I himself. Ramus defended himself by attacking Aristotle all the way until the king ordered a tribunal, which Ramus sensed was weighted against him. So he withdrew his defense and allowed himself to be sentenced in protest. The commission decided against him expectedly, and he was forbidden from lecturing, teaching, or publishing, and bonded specifically and expressly to leave Aristotle alone. The decree against Ramus was widely publicized. It was sent to universities all around France. Copies were posted in libraries and bars and wheat pasted on the streets of Paris. Ramus was subjected to widespread ridicule everywhere he went. Theaters staged farcical burlesques lampooning him, including a satire by Rabelais. Petrus was forced to lay low and take it all on the chin, two things that were very much not in his wheelhouse. Within a year, he was teaching on the sly at the College Ave Maria. Only mathematics, nothing where he could get himself in more trouble, and the crown pretended not to notice. Then, a stroke of luck. King Francis died, hooray! And his son, Henry II, ascended to the throne. Henry repealed Ramus's sentence, allowing him to openly teach again. Then he went a step further, elevating Ramus to a chair at the Royal Academy, where he was free to study and teach whatever he pleased. And what pleased Ramus? Shitting on Aristotle! But he also argued against economic inequality, for better educational opportunities for poor students, more scholarships, lower tuitions. He argued for more fire and emotion in the study of literature, which had become a world of dry and heartless recitation. He was, in effect, Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society, a film about a teacher who gives his students passion and meaning, and then everything goes really well for all parties involved, no worries. Just like Ramus's story. For the moment, Ramus was, like Williams, the most popular lecturer in France. This emboldened him. In 1555, he published a book, Dialectique, in which he expanded his attacks from merely Aristotle to all authority. Ramus believed that reason, rhetoric, and honest inquiry could give humanity full and complete understanding of the universe, and that it was the blockages of tradition dogma, and received wisdom that gummed up civilization's otherwise limitless potential. However dangerous his talk against Aristotle had been, the positions argued in dialectique were quite a ways more so. But Ramus either didn't care or couldn't help himself. He had an iconoclasm, a contrarian spirit that was irrepressible, that caused him to take the underdog in every match and to place the bet loudly and vociferously. I have no idea what that must be like. With that tendency, 
combined with his distrust for authority and his belief in the abilities of all people to deduce truth on their own, it was only natural that Petrus Ramus would convert to Protestantism. Protestant reformers, like Martin Luther and John Calvin, were to the rebellious young liberals of 16th century Paris what Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn were to the rebellious young liberals of late 20th century America. Again, not like I would know. I'm feeling a little embarrassed about Chomsky lately. In 1561, under a thin peace between the French government and Protestant Huguenots, he declared his conversion. A year later, though, open war broke out, and Petrus Ramus fled Paris under the protection of Catherine de' Medici, King Henry's queen. Ramus had a good and a powerful ally in Catherine, who went from queen to queen mother in 1559, when her husband Henry II died and her sons Francis II and then on his death Charles IX ascended. She helped Ramus return to Paris when peace was signed in 1563, helped him escape again when it was broken in 1567, and once again brought him back when it was safe. After that full civil war between Catholics and Huguenots, King Henry decreed that only Catholics could teach at university. Ramus was forced to retire, but again, Catherine came to his aid, paying him a private salary to study and write, finally, privately, finally quietly for the first time in his life. Unfortunately, it was not a great time for privacy and quiet. In 1570, France had brokered a new truce with the Huguenots, but it was extremely tenuous. To try to solidify the peace, Catherine planned to marry off her daughter, Margaret, to a Protestant prince, Henry of Navarre. The wedding did not go well. In August of 1572, the Huguenots came to Paris, but the Parisian Catholics were particularly spiteful of them. Furthermore, the Pope hadn't blessed the ceremony, so the French people were divided on whether or not the marriage was even real at all. On August 22nd, four days after the wedding, someone shot the Huguenot leader Colonnais from a window, and the sparks hit the tinder. Fearing reprisal, Catherine and King Charles held a late-night meeting and decided the best course of action would be to kill every Protestant they could get their hands on while the getting was good. This was the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. The Huguenot leadership were slaughtered in the housing provided for the wedding. Targeted assassinations rang out from every corner of the city. Lynch mobs ran through the streets. For weeks, the Protestant population of Paris was rounded up, sometimes by soldiers, sometimes by gentry, sometimes by peasants, and murdered. Which brings us back to our man, Pierre de la Ramie, by heritage and birth. Petrus Ramus, by reputation and choice, was in prayer the night of the 26th of August, in his study at the College de Prela, when two men kicked in his door. He was shot in the head, stabbed, and thrown from the fifth floor window. But somehow, he survived. His still breathing body was hoisted up by a mob of students, carried down the road, and tossed into the Seine, where Petrus Ramus drowned. Then his corpse was dredged out, chopped into bits, and redeposited in the river as food for the fish. But wait, we're missing something. Catherine ordered the assassinations, and Catherine had protected Ramus for decades. So why then 
would she have him killed now? The simplest explanation? She didn't. Tens of thousands of people were killed for being Protestant during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, and Ramus was a Protestant. Yet it is unlikely that the two had anything to do with one another, at least not directly. In the years preceding his murder, there were at least two other attempts on Ramus's life, orchestrated by a man who did not have religion on his mind. Back in 1565, seven years before the bloodshed, Ramus had protested this man, who had just bought his way into a professorship of mathematics at the Royal College. His name was Jacques Charpentier. The same Jacques Charpentier who had brought the charges against Ramus way back in 1543. Jacques Charpentier had used the chaos to finally get his revenge on Ramus for doubting Aristotle. Everything Aristotle has said is wrong. These were the words that baptized the lowly Pierre anew as Petrus Ramus, and these were the words that finally ended him. But they did so much more than that. Ramus was not an especially influential thinker on his own. His contributions to his fields, logic, rhetoric, pedagogy, were fairly paltry and largely ignored. And yet, his irascibility, his tireless attack on the status quo, deeply and profoundly changed the world. His belief that knowledge should be available to all trickled down, generation by generation, slowly expanding the opportunity of education to more and more people. And then again, there were those words. Everything Aristotle has said is wrong. They carried, creeped, and crawled their way around the world into the ear of René Descartes, father of modern philosophy, into the ear of Paracelsus, father of modern medicine, into the ear of Giordano Bruno, who heard them and rejected Aristotle's notion that the heavens were made up of crystal spheres and was burned at the stake for heresy into the ear of Galileo Galilei, who demonstrated that Aristotle was wrong when he said that heavier objects fall faster than lighter ones. Galileo Galilei, who was forced at threat of death to recant his statement that the earth goes round the sun rather than the other way around, and under his breath to himself, like a prayer said, and yet it moves. His words echoed down to Newton, who overturned Aristotelian physics with his laws of motion. They raised the head of William Halley, who saw that comets were interstellar phenomena. They shot skyward like an arrow through a stork's breast. Phil, our mascot from our very first episode, who proved that birds don't hibernate like Aristotle said, but instead make tremendous migrations. Look! We rag on Aristotle a lot here at The Constant. We even have t-shirts for sale about him. But Aristotle came up with a lot of really great stuff, and he never ever intended to be treated as the omniscient figure that Aquinas and everyone else made him to be. Aristotle's teacher, Plato, thought it was good enough to sit around and think stuff up and call it a day. He believed that the world was made of hidden ideals, and that the imperfect physical manifestations of those ideals, which is to say, everything, weren't really worthy of that much investigation. Aristotle rejected that. He understood that you had to look at and examine things empirically to figure out how they worked, even if he rarely actually did that in practice. 
It wasn't good enough just to cede your opinions to long-dead authorities. But that got lost, and Aristotle became the ultimate authority himself. And with that came hundreds of bad ideas. Some of those bad ideas are just silly curiosities, like the shark thing. Some of them held back scientific advancement, like his physics and chemistry. And some helped to hold back humanity itself, like his formal thoughts on the inferiority of women and the morality of slavery. The 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell said, throughout modern times, practically every advance in science, in logic, or in philosophy has had to be made in the teeth of opposition from Aristotle's disciples. And that is pretty much spot on. As they ossified and hardened, Aristotle's ideas became a dark and craggy cave in which Western civilization was trapped. And it was Petrus Ramus, with one sentence that both began and ended his life, who showed us the way out. From the Paris of the Prairie, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant. We'll be right back with another. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. People were killing their babies. That was the first problem. In early 19th century Vienna, times were tough for the poor, and times were especially tough for poor women. The stigma around unwed motherhood was deep, but the agency of poor women to avoid it was shallow. There was no abortion, no birth control. So, people were killing their babies, or abandoning them in the streets, at orphanages, and courthouses, and front doors. This disturbed the people of Vienna, as you might imagine, and so the government concocted a solution. Not the most progressive solution you can imagine, like, say, taking care of the aforementioned social stigma, or developing contraceptive techniques, or empowering women economically and politically. But still, it was better than nothing. Obstetrics. Before the 1820s, nearly all births happened at home, 
either with the aid of family members or a midwife or alone. That meant there were a lot of cases in which infanticide or abandonment could go unnoticed or unnoted. If they could move childbirth into a formal, professional, clinical setting, the thought was that they could put a stop to all the baby murder. The Vienna General Hospital opened two free birth clinics in the city, one right next to the other. The lure was less that the birthing was free, giving birth was free in your bathtub too, and more that any baby birthed within the clinics was entitled to a slew of free medical care thereafter. Diapers, medicine, checkups, even food and clothing. It was a strong and successful incentive. By the 1840s, childbirth among the Viennese poor was transformed. Hospitals and clinics replaced bedrooms and bathtubs. Family and midwives were replaced by nurses and doctors. And dead babies were replaced, too, by dead mothers. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Reflex. Clinic 1 and Clinic 2. They were run with dual purposes in mind. Helped safely deliver babies for the poor, yes, but they were also educational facilities, home to doctors and midwives in training. The two clinics didn't run simultaneously. They switched off. Clinic 1 the first day, Clinic 2 the second, Clinic 1 the third, and so on. The poor expectant mothers of Vienna were keenly aware of this pattern. By 1847, they were doing whatever they could to avoid Clinic 1. They would hold off until late in their labor, if need be, to get into Clinic 2. If that didn't work, they would beg staff at Clinic 1 to please let them be admitted to 2 instead. When that failed, some women would walk out and give birth in the alley behind the hospital. Because Clinic 1 had a reputation as a death chamber for mothers. The hospital administration considered this a superstition, the foolishness of the underclass, but they were powerless to persuade the masses. There was one man who took a different tack. Ignis Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician, had been appointed to what basically amounted to the position of chief resident in 1846, and he alone thought the desperation of women looking to avoid Clinic 1 deserved a closer look. He was especially struck by the women who were choosing to give birth on the streets. What superstition would be so strong as to create that kind of recklessness? How bad would things have to be in the clinic to move women into the filthy, dank alleyways of 19th century Europe? So, he did something that might seem obvious today, but that didn't even register to the other doctors of his time. He looked at the data. What Semmelweis found shocked him to his core. Childbirth is always a risky proposition. In America today, roughly 17 out of every 100,000 births results in the death of the mother. That might not sound like a big number, but it's a lot bigger than, say, Poland or Finland, where that rate is more like 3 per 100,000, five times less than the American one. Still, modern American obstetrics are a great deal better than those of the 19th century. Nowadays, the greatest risk to mothers in childbirth are hemorrhage and eclampsia, which is to say internal bleeding and high blood pressure. 
But back in Semmelweis's day, the main threat was puerperal sepsis, or childbed fever. Not long after giving birth, new mothers would be taken by an intense fever and inflammation of the uterus. This inflammation spread throughout the body, inflaming the lungs, the heart, the brain, and finally, killing the victim. Keep in mind, we're in 1847 here, so no one knows that bacteria and viruses exist. Medical science is still centered on fallacious theories like humors and miasmas, both of which we've talked about a lot in this show. Therefore, no one knew what caused childbed fever. Many obstetricians thought it was dietary somehow, or even a nervous condition. Some thought it had to do with contagious air wafting into the mother's lungs. Semmelweis didn't know what caused childbed fever either, although it seems he didn't buy into those ideas. What he did know, after looking at the clinic records, was that the women begging to avoid Clinic 1 were right. In Clinic 2, between 1 and 2% of mothers were dying of childbed fever. In Clinic 1, the rate was higher. Much higher. Nine times higher. 18%. Nearly two out of every 10 women admitted to Clinic 1 didn't come out. But how could that be? What could possibly explain such a stark and horrific difference? Semmelweis was distraught, depressed. He said that life didn't seem worth living as long as he presided over so much unnecessary death. He was determined to get to the bottom of the mystery and solve it once and for all. Fastidiously, comprehensively, Semmelweis began compiling and testing hypotheses. 1. Overcrowding? No, it was Clinic 2 that was the more crowded by a long shot. Remember, people were doing whatever they could to avoid Clinic 1, so it was positively empty by comparison, and as many of those avoiding it as could made their way to Clinic 2 instead. Scratch overcrowding. 2. Ventilation. One of the leading ideas about disease at the time had to do with the idea that some air was just contagiously unhealthy. So the notion that there was something floating through Clinic 1 was a natural hypothesis to Semmelweis. But no, the two clinics had virtually identical ventilation systems and the air running through one was not appreciably different than that in two. What about technique? When looking at the actual procedural differences between the two clinics, Semmelweis seemed to come across something important. In Clinic 1, mothers were instructed to lay on their backs. But in Clinic 2, they were told to lay on their sides. Semmelweis quickly ordered Clinic 1 to change their procedure to match the other. And no change. Procedure wasn't the issue either. Semmelweis was running out of obvious discrepancies between the two wards. Well, not quite. There was one big discrepancy that he knew of from the beginning. He just wasn't sure why it should matter. See, Clinic 1 was staffed by doctors in training, medical students, while Clinic 2 was staffed with students of midwifery. Aha, you say, midwives. That's the ticket. Traditional midwives must have provided better care than the heartless clinical physicians. But Semmelweis ruled this out, too. 
He compared the rates of peripheral sepsis in those attended to by midwives with the rates among mothers who gave birth at home without care, and they were virtually identical. If anything, those being tended to by midwives in the clinic were worse off. It wasn't anything that the midwives were doing right. It had to be something that the doctors were doing wrong. But Semmelweis was out of possibilities. The care and procedures between the two clinics were almost the same in the first place. And over the course of a few months, Semmelweis had done everything he could to iron out all differences and make Clinic 1 an exact procedural duplicate of Clinic 2. And still, the deaths continued. Semmelweis was defeated, distraught. He took holiday and left Vienna in March 1847, unsure of whether he could go on performing his duties as doctor as long as those duties meant the insuppressible, incidental deaths of young mothers. He hunkered down for three weeks in Venice, trying to put the daily tragedy that awaited his return out of mind. He got back on March 20th and was greeted by even more depressing news. During his vacation, his good friend and a fellow obstetrician, Jacob Kolechka, had died. Kolechka was a stark contrast to Semmelweis. He was the quintessential OBGYN of the time, disdainful of the common people. He cleaved hard to the idea that the stink about Clinic 1 was mere underclass superstition. He went further than that, though. He defended himself and his fellow physicians at the cost of the midwives. The year before his death, in 1846, he gave a speech in which he accused midwives of regularly pulling off the arms or legs of babies during delivery, or even popping off their heads in their impatience and inexpertise. Still, they were fast friends, and the already perturbed Semmelweis was driven even further down by the death of Kolechka. If you haven't caught on already, Semmelweis was not a guy to go to the swooning couch when faced with trouble. He wanted to know, to understand, to solve problems. So, met by the sad news of his friend's untimely demise, he had only one thing to say. Can I see his medical files? All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day, there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story.
Oleczka had been performing an autopsy with some of his medical students when one butterfingered protege nicked him with a knife in the finger. It wasn't a major wound, but the knife in question had, just moments before, been cutting through the dead flesh of their practice corpse. Soon after, Kolechka fell sick. He was taken by fever, inflammation. The inflammation spread to his lungs, his heart, his brain, before, finally, it killed him. Semmelweis was bowled over. He knew almost immediately what had killed Kolechka, childbed fever. By the same token, he knew what was killing his patients. The doctors in Clinic 1 had nearly the same procedures as the midwives in Clinic 2, yes, but there was one thing the doctors did that the midwives did not. Autopsies. Early in the mornings, before the clinic opened, the medical students of Clinic 1 would descend into the morgue to practice anatomy and receive training on the recently deceased cadavers of the hospital. Then, they would go straight up to the clinics and begin delivering babies. Again, remember, 1847. No one knows about bacteria, no one knows about viruses. Most believe that illness results from humors or miasmas, and most believe that childbed fever is the result of diet or nervous pressure. But by May, Semmelweis had put it together. He didn't know why it would work, or how it would work, but he knew he could put a stop to the spread of what the people were now calling doctor's plague with a simple three-word directive. Wash your hands. Because they didn't, see? Several mornings a week, the doctors of the clinic would go and dissect gangrenous corpses and then jaunt on up to deliver babies no steps in between. No gloves, no washing, no nothing. Infection being transferred from dead flesh to living mother via a doctor's hands was not something the clinicians could even conceive of. But Semmelweis had a strong hunch that it must be that. So, in mid-May, he instituted the new policy. Before taking patients in the clinic, each doctor and medical student was to wash their hands with chlorinated lime. In April, the maternal mortality rate was 18.3%. In June, 2.2. And those results became typical in Clinic 1. Within the next year, there were three months in which not a single case of childbed fever issued from the clinic, a result entirely unheard of in the years before the hand-washing initiative. I know, it's really hard to put yourself in a mindset where it would have possibly been okay to have doctors not washing their hands. It is difficult to see this story as being about the assiduous genius of Semmelweis rather than the dumbfounding grossness of everyone before him. What could be more obvious than washing your hands? But remember, Semmelweis didn't understand how it worked either. He theorized that there were, quote, cadaverous particles that were responsible for childbed fever, but he couldn't explain what they were or how they worked. 
he chose chlorinated lime, which is to say bleach, for hand washing, not because he knew of its disinfectant qualities, but because it eliminated the scent of the gore. If he had chosen lilac instead, his washing regimen might have failed, and he'd have been back to the drawing board again. What's astounding about Semmelweis isn't that he figured out the mechanism of disease, because he didn't. The astounding thing is that he followed the evidence in spite of his lack of understanding. And you say, well, sure. I mean, he went from nearly 20% of mothers dying to nearly none. Anyone would believe he was right faced with that evidence. But here's the thing. Anyone didn't. Semmelweis's students were amazed by the change, and they began spreading the word, person to person, in print, in lectures, any way they could. And they were scoffed at. The medical establishment, faced with the crucial and incontrovertible statistics of Semmelweis's clinic, said, nah, no way. The doctors of the world failed to believe Semmelweis for a variety of reasons. Some English doctors were already washing their hands, although not for quite the same reasons or in quite the same ways, so they thought that there was nothing new under the sun. Some doctors couldn't get over the lack of explanation offered by Semmelweis as to why hand washing should work. Some were just upset that this Hungarian Jewish doctor working in a free clinic would have the gall to call their hands dirty. Seriously, doctors were gentlemen. And to impugn a gentleman by calling him unclean was a monocle-dropping offense. But mostly the medical establishment didn't believe Semmelweis because they simply had no conception of disease and infection working this way. And that is for deeper reasons even than we've so far dug into. See, it's not just that they believed in miasmas and humors or that they didn't know what bacteria or viruses were. It's worse than that. They didn't realize there were diseases in anything like the way we know, now, at all. There was no pathology, only idiopathy. Here, let me explain. You go to work, grab your coffee mug, fill it up, and walk over to your desk. Next to you is Larry. You hate Larry, everybody hates Larry, and today, Larry has a cold. <coughs> Because Larry is a disgusting slob, who makes it a point to tell you about his Klingon language sticks cover band, no less, he's just sneezing up a storm, left, right, and center. And while you're doing your best to avoid eye contact, lest you inadvertently signal to him that you'd like to hear more about the current meta in Fortnite, he manages to aerosolize his infected snot right into your coffee mug. <coughs> From which you take a big ol' sip unawares. A couple of days later, <coughs> you're suddenly the one with the cold, and you manage to pass it on to your kid, who passes it to 10 of her 35 classmates. And 35 classmates, what's going on with the overcrowding in this district? And one of them passes it to the music instructor, and it's time for the school-wide recorder unit, so you know how those slobbery screeching pipes are gonna help, until finally, the damn virus manages to burn itself out somewhere in May. <coughs> When this happens, exactly as I've just described it, you understand the mechanics of it pretty well. The virus is spread in the aerosolized mucus of the sneeze, or from nose to hand, to door handle, to hand to mouth, whatever. Even if you don't know anything else about epidemiology, you get that much. 
But the folks of 1847 don't just not get that it's a virus responsible for the cold. They don't understand that there is a cold. The idea that there was a disease that spread from person to person was totally foreign. All disease was personal, the result of some intimate and idiosyncratic set of factors unique to the infected. To the physicians of Semmelweis's time, you and Larry and Betsy and Miss Arnold and the Mary Had a Little Lamb recorder crew don't have the same cold. You each have your own colds. Sure, there is something in the air exciting each of you to have a similar disease, but whatever that is, it is just a catalyst, a signal. It is not the sickness itself. So Semmelweis's results made no sense at all. While his theory was loose, the basic proposal was that there was some singular disease particle that was spreading from one person to the next. And that was ridiculous. Impossible. The only substances that could so affect one's health were poisons. But poisons couldn't spread from person to person. How could a poison redouble and multiply in one victim and then go forth and do likewise with the next and the next? And Semmelweis didn't know. All he knew was that washing your hands kept you from getting people sick. But that wasn't good enough for the medical establishment. So they rejected it, out of hand. In Vienna's Clinic 1, hand washing remained the norm. But that was it. Everywhere else, the norm was, instead, the deaths of mothers. The medical establishment didn't merely reject Semmelweis's conclusion. It tried to sink him. I mean, it wasn't a concerted effort. There was no conspiracy. And medical establishment is probably a pretty loaded term to be using for this. I just can't think of a better one. But functionally, Semmelweis was in for a bombardment of ruin. In 1849, he lost his job at Clinic One. He was replaced by his nemesis, Karl Braun, who published a refutation of Semmelweis that named not one, not two, not three or four, but 29 causes of puerperal fever. Semmelweis tried to get a position as a medical lecturer within the city of Vienna, but he faced some belittling opposition and eventually he fled the city in anger without so much as telling his friends goodbye. He returned to his hometown of Pest, as in one half of Budapest, and in 1851 took an unpaid position in the obstetric ward of a small hospital there. This was a very humble position, but Semmelweis still managed to make the most of it. He quickly eliminated childbed fever from his new stomping grounds, with the same hand-washing routine as he had instituted in Vienna. But the doctors of Pest were as antagonistic to him as those in Vienna. He had a little bit of luck when the head of obstetrics at the University of Pest died in 1854. That head had been among the many, many people who thought Semmelweis was full of it, and Semmelweis hadn't been shy about making his feelings on that known. In fact, while there are plenty of reasons to blame the establishment for dismissing his results, some of that blame has to go to the man himself. Not only did Semmelweis refuse to publish his findings for a long, long time, but he was also notoriously bristly. He was loud and outspoken, venting his frustrations with those who failed to listen to him in angry, insulting terms. 
So when Semmelweis applied to fill the vacant position at Pest, it was seen as a laughable long shot, especially since Karl Braun, who had taken over at Clinic One five years before, also threw his hat in the ring. The university quickly settled on Braun, but the city overruled that decision because Braun didn't speak Hungarian and brought in Semmelweis instead. When Semmelweis took his seat at the University of Pest, he did exactly what you'd expect. He instituted hand-washing procedures for all doctors, nurses, and medical students. And equally as predictable, rates of childbed fever diminished. That was three hospitals of data now that supported Semmelweis's conclusion. And still, the powers that be scoffed. What did he have to do to get his due? How could so many physicians remain so hard-headed in the face of all this unnecessary death? In 1861, Semmelweis did what he thought he had to. He published. The ideology, concept, and prophylaxis of childbed fever was dense with data, tables, charts, and numbers that established irrefutably that washing hands saved lives. The mountain of evidence was insurmountable, and again, the medical community balked. It was too dependent on numbers, too concerned with statistics. Medical treatises of the day were more philosophical in demeanor, so Semmelweis's was seen as workmanlike, pedestrian, overcompensating. It didn't help that between all of those facts and figures were more personal attacks on the very establishment he was trying to reach. He name-checked a couple of famous physicians, calling them murderers and ignoramuses. You might think spitting in the faces of people so locked in ignorance and vanity that they were allowing thousands of women to die is understandable, if not a particularly effective tack, and you'd be right, sure. But starting around the time the book came out in 1861, Semmelweis's attitude took a turn. Every conversation, be it with friends, colleagues, or even his wife, would turn into a blind rage. All small talk was redirected towards childbed fever. He began to withdraw from his family, drinking heavily, holing up with prostitutes. Those few friends he had began to turn away from him. He was alone, obscure, shunned. Just what it was that was happening to Semmelweis in the 1860s is an open historical question. Some have argued that he was taken by Alzheimer's, others that his erratic behavior was a sign of late-stage syphilis. Syphilis, after all, was a common hazard of the job for obstetricians. As you've probably gathered by now, the people of the mid-19th century didn't know the first thing about how to prevent the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Even Semmelweis's handwashing couldn't solve that problem. And most of Semmelweis's practice was in free clinics for the poor, which meant treating a lot of prostitutes. The dangers of their jobs became the danger of his job. Yet there's another plausible explanation for Semmelweis's behavior, and that is that it was the natural result of fighting fruitlessly to change a world that resisted adamantly. Perhaps there was nothing pathological about Semmelweis's behavior at all, Perhaps screaming fire, fire, ever louder to an audience that insists on continuing to watch the movie while the screen burns is an entirely rational action. Regardless, the few friends that remained in his company eventually decided they had to do something. On July 30th, 1865, Dr. Ferdinand Ritter von Hebra invited Semmelweis to visit his new sanitarium. Just to take a look, see what he was doing. 
Once there, Semmelweis sensed a trick was coming and tried to make a run for the exit. He was grabbed by a group of guards who beat him severely, restrained him in a straitjacket, isolated him in a cell, and fed him a raft of diuretics. Two weeks later, he succumbed to his wounds. Sepsis, internal infection. The very phenomenon he'd spent his life combating took it on August 13th, 1865. Only a small handful of friends and family bothered to attend his funeral. His death barely made the obit section. His discovery remained as obscure as him until 20 years later, when Louis Pasteur and Joseph Lister made their discoveries of germ theory and antiseptics. But Semmelweis was by then so forgotten that few seemed to have connected these new conclusions back to him. It was only in the mid-20th century that people began to recognize the good that Semmelweis had done and tried to do. The University of Budapest Medical School was renamed in 1969 as Semmelweis University. What once was Clinic 1 in Vienna is now the Semmelweis Clinic. The man himself has gained some names too. Father of antiseptic, savior of women, angel of mothers. His story is taught to medical students the world over, a reminder of the values of empiricism and the perils of orthodoxy. And in the 1970s, doctors Robert Anton Wilson and Timothy Leary, two guys who had a bit of experience in getting stuff wrong, let me tell you, examined the resistance so often encountered in science. Ideally, the scientific process is meant to be objective, dispassionate, responsive to fact. But in practice, it is seldom so simple. New ideas are regularly rebuffed and rebuked. Thomas Kuhn, in The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, chalked this up to what he called incommensurability, the way an old paradigm lacks the imagination and language to grasp its replacement. But Wilson and Leary gave this phenomenon a different name, the Semmelweis Reflex. Music for this episode provided by Epidemic Sound, Blue Dot Sessions, and Lee Rosevere. For supporters of this show, this episode doesn't just provide higher quality versions of older stories, it also gives them those stories ad-free and early. Pretty good deal, right? You can join them by heading over to patreon.com slash theconstant and signing up. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois where you can visit the International Museum of Surgical Science. I highly recommend you do, and gaze upon a great statue of Ignis Semmelweis standing over a mother and child, alive in marble forever. This has been The Constant. Because Larry is a disgusting slob who makes it a point to tell you about his Klingon language sticks cover band, no less. That's a reference that. <laughs> when I wrote this, I had a manager who did go on and on about a Klingon language sticks cover band. It sounds so outrageous, but it was a true thing in my life. 
Wow, I had forgotten about that. <laughs>